Hello and welcome to UWO Now. I'm your host, Wendell Ray. We're happy to have you join us for another discussion with a member of our UWO community. UWO Now gives everyone an opportunity to hear great conversation with UWO's family of subject matter experts. There are a lot of talented people at UWO, students, staff, faculty, and alumni. A small group of alumni will be recognized for their professional work and civic achievements at the annual Alumni Awards Dinner. We present parts of the conversations we've had with a few of those alumni here today. We start with Brody Carmenzine, who is a client partner at Meta, formerly known as Facebook. Brody leads a team that manages a book of business for Meta's highest priority advertisers, worth more than $100 million. So how are you preparing them, those clients, uh, Brody, for um, this new world of advertising, digital advertising? What's the impact of specifically AI on what you do, what you do and what I and others uh, who are uh, uh, users of Facebook, how do we, how are we impacted by the use of AI? Yeah, great question. So you may not realize it, but basically most of what you see and have been seeing on Facebook, Instagram has been determined by AI for, for many years, almost a decade at this point. Um, basically, wow. at, at Meta, there's about a thousand football fields worth of computer servers that, you know, it's millions of, of computers that run code that Meta created basically this language that runs artificial intelligence called PyTorch. Wait a minute. Did you, you said you said a thousand football fields. Is that what you said? Say a thousand football fields footage and I put it into a football field worth of <laughs> Uh, like square feet. And so it's about a thousand football fields of, of servers. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I, I heard that and it no, kinda okay. took a minute to sink in, but uh, you, you, so, so there's all these servers and AI has been around uh, and we've been experiencing on Facebook for about a decade now, uh, even though probably in the last year or so it's kind of ramped up a little bit. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, when you see a post, from someone versus someone else, it's determined at, at the end of the day by an AI system. So it's uh, like, especially the reels videos, the short form videos that you see, where you don't really like search for the video, it just kind of like tries to rank content in a way okay. that yeah. you'll you'll like. That's, that is, it's like kind of maybe a boring use of artificial intelligence, but at the end of the day, there's, you know, tens of millions of, of videos that could be ranked for you and it ranks them using AI to make your feed good. And is that how I see certain ads after I have clicked on something or I've talked about something or shared a post with someone Then I get an ad that is very similar to, or actually related to that conversation? Yeah. Yeah. So ads ranking is really similar to how uh, posts and feed stories and it reels are ranked. So a lot of times, you know, there's, there's some type of indication that you're either interested in something you know, if, if you like a certain genre of music, you might see concert tickets for that genre of music. Or if you um, if you go to a website and you look at a specific product, a lot of times that website sends us the information because they're looking to advertise the, their products to you. And so okay. then we can start to surface ads and all the ads that you could see, there's, you know, I think there's 10 million advertisers. So you, you could probably be exposed to hundreds of thousands of ads. So the AI system has to rank all those hundreds of thousands of ads to like the number one, number two, et cetera, 
that would make sense for you. And that's kind of how like the personalized ads work today. I, I did a deep dive in the internal communications tools to see like, if, I'm like, what, like, what is going on here? Cause I've had that experience before. Like I was at my, my at my in-laws and she was talking, my mother-in-law was talking about Polish bowls, which mm-hmm. really versatile kitchen tool, check them out. <laughs> okay. And I got an ad for Polish bowls. I'm like, okay, there's, there's no way. Like yeah, this is right. insane. So I, I need to, I need to look into this. Turns out it, it was probably just I was on the same Wi-Fi, so it's going to show me similar ads because she had just purchased a bunch of Polish bowls from the website uh, after seeing an ad on that IP address. So uh, it just it was it was one little piece of data like I wasn't thinking about that could be used to show me an ad that I could be interested in. Um, but no, the engineers were basically like, "Yeah, it's first of all, it's way too expensive to try to take in that much audio information and then use that for targeting." But most importantly, it's it's like total violation of privacy and the operating system of like Android and uh, Apple's iOS. Like they would never allow for that type of thing. Each year, millions of Americans pass through the turnstiles at theme parks across the country. Some of those parks are like little cities with attractions, entertainment and food. Here in the Midwest, a UWO graduate is in charge of not one, but five such cities. John Cranick is the president of Six Flags Great America and is responsible for the park in Gurnee, which is just outside of Chicago, as well as the water park there, Hurricane Harbor. He's also in charge of Six Flags St. Louis, Hurricane Harbor St. Louis, and Hurricane Harbor Rockford. Managing large teams at those parks and keeping everyone safe and satisfied is a major responsibility. I asked him how expectations from visitors have changed during his nearly three decades at Six Flags. That, that is a, a big piece of the feedback, it seems, for what I've paid for this experience. What is the return? You know, how many rides did I get on? Um, what was the food and beverage experience? Um, so how long were the lines? So that, that expectation for um, what they were able to do on, on their, the day of their visit. So I, I think that is, is we get pressed on that. So we can introduce additional rides, we can introduce uh, additional uh, roller coasters. Uh, we're up to 17 roller coasters here in Gurney. Wow. The, the charm of that is the more you have, the shorter the lines are for the other ones. So it just kind of spreads people out a little bit more. Um, so I feel good about that. But the days of standing in line three hours for a roller coaster seem to be a thing of the past. Nobody wants to wait much for anything. It's a little bit more immediate. And I think that that's it. The shorter attention span, the willingness to wait in line for much has diminished. Um, so that I think that that immediate gratification, the, the I, I want it. I want to do it. I want to do it now. Um, so that's changed a bit. Um, the food and beverage focus, I think, is quite a bit that we've been pressed for more variety, um, a little higher quality. Um, I, mm. I think the world of our food and beverage team, they, they stay on top of trends. They've introduced so many new products this year, and the feedback's been outstanding. Um, Korean corn dogs. I, I've, I've got my own, my, my kids, I got to go home and ask my, my 18 year old son, you've heard of this and they have, and I said, great, you know, so I'm, I, that, that helps me out tremendously because I'm like, okay. Uh, and then the guests react and um, it's, 
there's so much fresh product. You you picture things at a theme park coming off of a truck and and into a deep fryer and out off the counter. But I walk back into our the back of house at our restaurants, and there's fresh vegetables and and fresh uh, uh, meats and produce, and they're they're cooking in walks and they're they're chopping up uh, these vegetables and that and it's it's the expectation is there that this is that this is good quality food and and we're delivering and it's exciting but um i, I think that that's what's expected it's not just um you know uh chicken strips and pizza anymore you know that this <laughs> it's a little higher quality and we're charging the prices guilty you know i got it but uh if you're doing that you, you can't just you know march out a frozen pizza out there it's got to be better than that so um, and our, our food and beverage team is delivering. So um, th- those are, I think, living up to the guest expectations is, is required. What is your off season like? When is that, first of all? And what do you try to achieve during the times when the park is closed? I guess if you call it an off season. Yeah, I, I, that was my question. <laughs> I, I think my wife would uh, struggle to help me find that answer, too, because I don't really know. The off-season used to be a thing when there was a little bit of downtime, but um, it just seems to go on. We've, we've found ways to kind of stretch the season a little bit. Um, Fright Fest is really our most popular time of year. If I point to our highest attended days of the season, the top five highest attended days are during Fright Fest, almost without exception. And Fright Fest, for those who don't know, is in October, right? It's on uh, uh, Halloween. Yeah. That's the Halloween-themed event, and Halloween has become such a popular holiday in in our society now that um, it, that's when the guests, we stretch that into to start in mid-September, and it just grows as we get closer to Halloween itself in October. Um, and that's true at most all of our parks. It's particularly true in Gurney and St. Louis, um, but that has allowed the theme park uh, uh, to stretch well beyond Labor Day into the end and sometimes through past October into early November at times, depending on how the calendar shakes out. This is UWO Now. I'm your host, Wendell Ray. And we're giving you a taste of several different episodes featuring alumni who will discuss various topics this season. But also, they are a part of a group of alumni who will be recognized by UWO. We've talked to two, and next we'll talk with a national leader in healthcare delivery who is assuming an exciting new position with Mayo Clinic International when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. You're listening to UWO Now. I'm Wendell Ray, and we're talking with Teresa Conley, Associate Vice President of Delivery Services at Mayo Clinic International. Teresa and 10 other alumni will be recognized by UWO on Friday, October 27th, at the annual Alumni Awards Celebration to be held at the Culver Family Welcome Center. And you should attend. Teresa will be recognized with a Distinguished Alumni Award. For more information on the event, contact UWO's Alumni Relations Office, or you can email alumni at uwosh.edu. I would imagine, uh, Teresa, that you've seen a lot of different things come and go in your time as a healthcare professional, but I, I would imagine also that the COVID uh, period was a trying time for healthcare workers. Healthcare facilities, 
healthcare leaders. Tell us about how you navigated those waters uh, during a very trying time for the country and the world, actually. Yeah, so uh, Wendell, this was, 2020 was a life-changing year for me personally, and obviously for the world. Um, that was the year I joined the international team. So I was in Abu Dhabi for that year. And I'll back up to 2019 just for a moment so you know how I got there. In 2019, Mayo Clinic was going through a due diligence effort and doing some consulting with a hospital that was a state-of-the-art hospital in Abu Dhabi getting ready to open. I was the nursing rep in my chief nursing officer hat there, helping guide that. Made about four trips to Abu Dhabi that year. And then in November of 19, Mayo Clinic decided to sign a joint venture agreement with this organization. So we went into partnership. The hospital opened in January. Mayo's model is a dyad model. So our physicians always hold the rank of our CEO, our presidents, they are our leaders, but they always have at their side an administrative partner. And that role is the chief administrative officer. So they hired and recruited the CEO, Dr. Nasser Amash, but they came short on the CAO. So I was asked to go over there in January for three months to help kind of bridge over into the continued recruitment for that CAO position. As we know, the pandemic hit. So my three month gig turned into 11 and a half months. So my experience with the pandemic was at a brand new facility that had opened on the other side of the world and trying to navigate a startup, another culture and the pandemic. So um, one of the things that I'm really quite proud of in that experience, many things, but one of them is a project we call Operation Hope. So hospitals typically when they open, they don't, op they don't open at full capacity. They open slowly so that they can ramp up for all sorts of quality and safety reasons. Our census, our hospital census surged. Um, we were about an 800 bed, roughly 800 bed capacity hospital. We started probably in the mid 200s to get us going. And we surged by over 200 patients in about two weeks as soon as the um, COVID population and the pandemic started to settle in. Wow. So we quickly found ourselves short staffed. You can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. We're not staffed for that. Nobody really was. But when you're a brand new hospital and you've doubled your census, you're really short staffed. So we launched a pro uh, project I did back with my colleagues in the US called Operation Hope. And Hope stood for helping our partnership expand. And in a matter of about three weeks, we got a Etihad was the airline that gave us a jet um, to fly from Abu Dhabi to Rochester, Minnesota. We brought over 90 caregivers, physicians, therapists, nurses and the like to go and deploy to Abu Dhabi for six, eight, 12 weeks to care for this surge patient population. We had to cross cultural barriers, licensing barriers in another country, onboarding and just getting accommodations and everything together in three weeks was a pretty proud teamwork effort on behalf of myself and my colleagues. And since that time, obviously we've gotten on the other side of the pandemic and SSMC over in Abu Dhabi continues to make a difference, um, bringing in new procedures, practices and advancing healthcare for the UAE. You picked up 90 healthcare workers where, where, from where? Where did they, where did they get them from? So they were all Mayo Clinic employees and the timing was serendipitous. So I, you know, every, every crisis kind of has a, a silver lining. And if you think what was happening back in the U.S. during the pandemic, surgeries were being canceled, right? Um, 
just routine health care was being minimized so that people could care for this new patient population. So we actually, as Mayo Clinic, since we were canceling so many surgeries and such, we did have a surplus of staff. So we were able to bring 90 staff, and Mayo Clinic is an organization of 65 plus thousand large, right? So we have a large number to pull from. And these staff came from all of our sites, Rochester, Arizona, Florida, Wisconsin, Minnesota. So all of our sites leaned in, and 90 might sound like a large number. It really made a difference in Abu Dhabi, but a healthcare organization our size was able to contribute that without um, too much negative implications back home. Coming up, conversations with a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and a UWO graduate who has something in common with Oprah Winfrey. This is UWO Now on 90.3 WRST. Jeff Garrett was a philosophy and music major at UWO, but he blazed a trail as a journalist. When he was a reporter early in his career, he covered jails and prisons, both in Oshkosh and Michigan. But it was a series of editorials and reports that he did while working in Texas that won him the Pulitzer Prize, the highest recognition of excellence in the field of journalism. It all started with the death of a woman in a local jail and grew from there to uncover system-wide issues. These editorials were investigative editorials anyway. They were, there was a lot of reporting that went into all of them. So they were breaking news at the same time they were commenting on news mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. Um, I did have a reporter there and he did write some stories on this as well. Um, but most of the reporting was done by me through the editorials. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, going back to becoming a reporter before you become an editorial writer, I could not have done that if I had not been a reporter for many years first and had those skills, those investigative skills. But yeah, there was a violation of her fundamental human rights, not even being considered a human being, really. A prisoner dying in jail isn't news. When you think about that, it's an atrocious statement. And then a violation of these open records and then using the HIPAA law. They, they didn't want, they used the HIPAA law that they would violate her privacy rights to give her parents, to give her parents and family the medical records. Total misuse of the, of the law. And then you found others? This led to other cases that you decided? Tell us about the, the trail that you went down after that. Well, first of all, we had to find out what happened to her. The first editorial was just a cry for transparency. Mm -hmm. And then we, we got some records through the Texas Rangers who did an investigation there. The DA wouldn't give us those records. The jail, of course, wouldn't give us those records. The Texas jail system wouldn't give us those records by law the texas rangers didn't have to either and i still don't know why they did but normally if they don't have to give it to you they won't a government agency but they gave us the record the investigative record on her which clearly showed she died by negligence and then i thought there's got to be this has got to be happening all over the place because i've heard i've gotten calls from other inmates and prisoners from there so I just FOIA'd 35 investigations of deaths. And sort of the, all the ones that have been done in the last year where the prisoner died in the jail that were completed, because they would not give you the investigation if it was still open. And then I looked through all of those 35. I did, I tried to do one at night. I, you know, I, I, mm -hmm. eight or nine o'clock at night, 
I'd be done with my work, so I tried to spend another couple hours looking through one in, one file. So I got through all those 35, and I found out there was there were a couple that you couldn't tell because they just weren't the investigations weren't very good. But in at least 60% of the cases, I found that the deaths were preventable, clearly preventable. And some of it was just falsifying log documents. This is right in the report, and that's a, that's a federal offense actually. But you know the supervisors telling the officers that you have to falsify because there's not enough staff to make the checks. So you just got to doctor the, 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 the logs to make it seem like you made these checks, even when you didn't. And they would actually tell their staff to do that. And, you know, that's that's tampering with uh, government property or whatever it was. That's, that's a pretty serious offense, but it was going on rapidly. And a lot of the deaths were just due to that. I was going to ask you if there was a common thread of these 35 cases that you actually scoured. Was there some common thread there about their deaths or were they 35 different reasons for their deaths? The common thread was people just didn't give a damn. That was the common thread. Um, Staff, you know, they were prisoners. They didn't, you know, there I saw one case where a guy was screaming from withdrawal in in the jail, and the and the corrections officers were laughing at him and, and mocking him. Not, I'm not saying they all were like that because there's some damn good correctional officers. I don't want to paint that picture, but the common thread is that people didn't give a damn. They either didn't do what they were supposed to do, or didn't take the extra steps. The you know just a little extra action that would have saved somebody's life. You're listening to UWO Now. I'm Wendell Ray, and today we're talking with alumni who will be recognized at the annual Alumni Awards celebration. For information about the event, contact UWO's Alumni Relations Office or email alumni at uwosh.edu. Our final guest was a journalism major at UWO and spent time as a journalist in New York City. But Jenny Asaba talked to us about not being afraid of walking the path that is set before you. She left her position as a reporter and began developing communities, both at Jamf, a tech company in Minneapolis, and across the world. She and her husband established a school for children in Uganda, putting her in the same company as another former journalist, Oprah Winfrey. Okay, so you come up with this idea to help many of the young people in, in this uh, community in Uganda uh, by developing a school. Tell us about how that happened. That's not something you just do, right? Especially from the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, my husband, having grown up in that area, he always had the dream of building a school. And we had talked about it, laughed about it over the years of like, yeah, wouldn't that be great? But how the heck do you do that, especially from 65 you know, thousand miles away or 6,500 miles away, I should say. So how do you do it from really far away? And it was on our trip in 2019. We took, we had two sons at the time and we went and did a family vacation and went back to Uganda. And it was on the airplane home that we looked at each other and we're like, we don't know how, but now's the time we need to build a school because these kids need it. We had visited a school on that trip that looked kind of like a barn. And I would I would put it that probably most people in the Midwest wouldn't even think it was good enough for their livestock. Um, hmm. So it, w- it was a rough situation. And we're just like, we, we have no idea how, but we're going to. We are going to 
build a school and we're going to provide a safe quality education for kids living in this village. And we got back to the United States and got connected with an attorney who set up our nonprofit for us, Building for Bridget Pro Bono, which was incredible. And then we just started talking about it. And I I am the fundraiser. I am not good at fundraising, but I'm like, you know what? Again, like if you're passionate about something and I think you're you're doing something really meaningful, people want to get behind that. And they did. And that allowed us to purchase four acres of land um, to build a seven building campus. And we have preschool through grade five, currently 260 students. And we opened in February of this year. So it has been incredible to see the journey and actually get to the place where the dream has come true. It's not perfect yet. We definitely have a lot of stuff that we want to do moving forward to really finalize and and advance the school and its offerings. But we're at a good spot. Um, We're really excited about it. That's fantastic. What was it like working with the government of Uganda, or did you have to work with the government of Uganda to get this school on uh, up and running? Because um, for those who might not know, working with other governments is not like necessarily working with the government of your home country, United States, or wherever you might be. Working in a foreign government, it's you know there's, there's different cultural things you got to understand, different rules and regulations, different leadership styles, all that. How was it working uh, to get this project off the ground and completed? Yeah, I'll say the word is tricky. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's diplomatic. It was was tricky. I, um, we have the benefit that my husband is, you know, he's one of the most selfless people in the world, but he's really the genius behind making this happen. Because not only did he draw all of the plans for what the school would be, he worked with all of the local government. He worked with the engineers remotely. I mean, he did all of this to make sure that it happened. And a lot of that is understanding culture as, as what you're speaking to, because Uganda is a very, it's a very corrupt country that's had a really rough background. And knowing that means that you recognize that things don't exactly work in the same channels as they would in a developed nation. So understanding that some people may want bribes or that a process is just going to be created in order to get more money. I mean, those are very real things that you have to work through. And it was, again, tricky. Um, But he, I think through the right connections, through just very smart, strategic interactions, was able to show that we're going to do something that's incredibly beneficial for this community and ultimately got it done. So it wasn't easy, but we got there. And you're servicing how many young people now? Tell us about the the school specifically, who's working there, and uh, what ages we're talking about. Yeah, so we, I should start with the fun fact of, you know, when you talk about difficulties working with other governments, we were planning to open to grades kindergarten through five, or our equivalent of grades kindergarten through five. And right before we opened, I mean, within months, the Ugandan government said, oh, by the way, you can't open a school unless you have uh, our their equivalent of preschool. And we're like, oh, great. Okay, we didn't plan for that, but <laughs> sure. So we hired some extra staff and converted one of our buildings that was going to be used for something else into the preschool classrooms. Luckily, we had built a big enough campus that we were able to accommodate. Um, 
but over the course, we we employed hundreds of people. And like I said before, work there is really scarce. We were able to provide living wages for people building this entire campus. We now have, oh gosh, at least a dozen people on staff as our teachers. We have cooks, we have security, we have admins. Um, so real good jobs where folks can come in and, and really make a difference in that community. And again, preschool through grade five and approximately 260 students right now. That's all for now on UWO Now. Remember to listen to our podcast. Each of our guests today will be featured on individual episodes this season. But today's episode is available on popular platforms. Remember to use the RSS feed to stay up to date. You can watch today's episode also on the UWO YouTube page. I'm Wendell Ray. Thanks for listening.